This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Ron. How's it going? Pretty good, man. Long time no talk. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, yeah. It has been a while. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Honey Badger. When you need your code to be reliable, Honey Badger helps with uptime monitoring and contextualized error messages to save you time and money. Get started on Honey Badger today and get a 30% discount by mentioning the Ruby Blend when you sign up at honeybadger.io. It's been a bit since we've recorded because all of our lives have been a bit in a, a disarray is what I'll define what me and Eric and Nate have been going through. Maybe yours has been fine, but we've been in a bit of a disarray, but everything's starting to get back together now and that's been great. So Eric Barry is going to be joining us more in the future and he was on the last episode, but he couldn't make it today. And someone else that we wanted to start bringing on more is Dave Kamara. So Dave is on this and we wanted to welcome him to the show. So Dave, do you want to give a little bit of an introduction for people who don't know you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's good to be on. I've been doing Ruby for quite some time. I, I like to dabble in it. Ruby has definitely changed my life. So from originally getting my first job as a Ruby developer about 10 plus years ago to having our third daughter, who we ended up naming Ruby because the Ruby languages changed our life so much. So that was just kind of like an ode to Ruby and to Matt. And I also been doing the Drift and Ruby screencast for a bit over five years now, it seems like. Nice. How many episodes do you have on Drifting Ruby? I just finished episode 255. So the first hundred or episodes were free. And then I started staggering the first episode of each month is free now. Very cool. Yeah. When I was learning Ruby, Drifting Ruby was definitely a resource I used. And it was great to kind of get to know you not too long after I discovered Drifting Ruby. So welcome to the show. I know Ron and I are happy to have you. And I'm hoping, or I guess Nate and Eric and I are kind of hoping that with more of us, there will be less of a reason to skip. So at least there will be two or three people. Whereas in the past, there were times where it would just be me and Ron, or maybe I was the only one who could show up. And we're hoping that by adding a few more voices to the mix that the recording schedule will get a little bit more on track. So welcome to the show. And I'm going to give a quick update. So where we last left off was, I believe we were talking about interviewing. I was just starting to interview and Nate and Eric were still trying to get CodeFund profitable and still trying to keep that dream alive. Unfortunately, that dream has died. RIP. I I definitely poured one out for it. But so Eric and Nate are no longer working with CodeFund and... So none of us are anymore. And we all went on an interview circuit and talked about that. You can I talked about that a little bit more on Remote Ruby, which is kind of our sister show. But in that time, Eric and I actually joined the same company. And we are both working for a company called Realvolve. And Nate took a CTO position somewhere in Florida. So all of us have found jobs. And I know we were all very appreciative for all the help and support that came in from the community. So if you sent us any leads or just sent us like any encouragement, we really appreciate that. And we are all happily employed now. So I just wanted to give that as a quick kind of status update. It's been a while. And Ron, what have you been up to recently? Yeah, I'm 
still at kin, still loving it. One thing I wanted to talk about, though, on kind of a, a code front, one thing that we had been talking about at kin is the idea of uh, service objects and kind of this thing of, you know, where do they belong in your app as far as like the file structure goes? And how do you, you know, how do you name um, a service object? So I was hoping to get your, you know, some of your views on um, what you think about service objects in Ruby and Rails specifically. Yeah, Dave, why don't you take this one? Because I, I have some opinions, but I know that a lot of my opinions have been slightly informed by listening to you. So I'll let you <laughs> take it first and then I'll add anything. So if I'm going to go into a controller and if I'm going to read through it, let's say if a lot of good practices have been put in place in this Rails application, and I want to see kind of what's going on with a particular action, this action might be calling one or two different plain old Ruby objects, which I think our community has pretty much just given this label of service objects to. You know, because I mean, what is a service object really? It's just kind of this fancy word that we just kind of label things. That's a class which does a function, but then it also doesn't have any kind of active record model associated to it. So it's just kind of this thing of what do we call this? It's not really an active record object. It is a class and a plain old Ruby object, but we need something fancier to call it. I don't know. Let's just call it a service object. But I don't think, for the most part, at least even myself, I refer to them as service objects because it is a piece of business logic that is going to happen, yet it does not act as a true service object as other languages and communities would refer them to. But when I am looking into a controller and a action specifically, I want to be able to, at a glance, understand what's going on with this action. If I had to start carefully reading through all of the code to see what calculations are going on, it's a long action, then it's not going to be very easy for someone to maintain over time. So here in comes our service objects, which is basically just an abstraction of code that we put somewhere else within our application. And so, Ron, you had mentioned a couple of things about the service objects of what to call them and that kind of stuff. And one practice that I usually try to do is to make it very clear what this class is that I'm calling. So I'll usually, at the end of my class, even though it's extracted into a service folder or something like that, I would actually put service at the end. So that way I know that it is going to go to this one particular place. Like if I want to not have to use my editor's find definition or if I'm not using RubyMine or something else, then I know exactly what folder I need to go into to start looking for that class's definition. Yeah, I see it that way as well, or I have historically. And that's kind of how I've written my quote unquote service objects in the past is putting them in like a services directory under app and then, you know, writing, you know, whatever. For instance, the last one I wrote 
was a required inspections service, right? To determine which inspection is required. And that's kind of the way the company has done it historically. But now we've been having these conversations and people have been bringing some other ideas to the table. One being rather than putting service at the end to denote it as a service is just to name it an action. So for instance, my required inspection service became determine required inspection. And I can see the pros and the cons with that approach. One con I think that is evident is the fact that you don't really know it as a service apart from other classes just by seeing the class name. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of a, if I'm, you know, like grepping through my files, it's really easy for me to find the services if it has service in the name. But one of the pros is, and I had never really thought about uh, service objects like this until, you know, these discussions, that service objects really should be like functions. Like, even though this is, you know, Ruby, it's object oriented, we're creating these classes. Each class should really just do one thing and do it well. And it should really be just like a function that is called in your application. So from that perspective, naming the service object based on an action, like a verb of what it does, makes sense too. So in code, it would be determine required inspection dot call. And that reads kind of more like a function call then it is a call to a service that, you know, may do more than one thing. So, yeah, thinking of them as functions, I think, is an interesting way of doing it. And even when creating it, you know, you create like a class method, self.call, which in itself instantiates the object and does whatever it needs to do. But really, the only interaction that you have with it outside of the class is just you know, class name dot call and then, you know, pass in whatever arguments and you get the value, you know, the return value. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I can definitely get on board with that idea. And that's how I actually structure all of my classes like that, where there is a class level method call, which then creates a new instance of that object passing in the parameters. And then it calls the instance method call. So that way I can do all my adder accessors and everything there. If you have more than one public instance method in the service objects, I think you have an opportunity to then extract that second method out into another service object, if you will. Right. And that is what it's been boiling down to with the conversation that we've been having at work. If you have a service where you have basically more than one you know, public interface method, that's probably a smell that, or, you know, maybe not a smell so much, but as far as how we're trying to structure our code, if that happens, then you should probably create another service object so that basically every service object has the same public interface. It's the class dot call. And like you said, that instantiates within that class method instantiates the object you know, passes in whatever you need so you can, you know, write the internals like you would any other, you know, plain old Ruby object. 
And one nice benefit with doing it that way is you also have the opportunity to then inherit the service objects by something else like an application service where you have that public instance method called defined and then you have it raised, raise an error if it's not defined within your actual service object. So that way you can kind of put some form and parameters around how these objects should be created. Absolutely. Yep. One thing I'd like to do with, I always, every type of abstraction I'm doing, I like to create, whether it's review components or service objects or, you know, jobs, whatever, I like to do the kind of Rails pattern of creating like an application service, application component, or whatever. And one thing that I'm pretty sure that I have used in the past is kind of what Dave is saying, where you either you raise if the method is not defined in the inherited or in the class that inherits from the application service, or you can just define a method in your application service called, you know, def self.call and like splat args and then let it accept a block and then just call new and then pass it args in the block and just all on it. So like there's ways to kind of like, I think however you decide to define your service objects, whether you do like a traditional service object kind of pattern where you're doing call or you're doing more like interactors where you're calling perform or you're just having these plain Ruby objects in your non-active record backed models. However you decide to do it, I think having a pattern and an interface to use them that you use everywhere is kind of to not letting them kind of get out of control. Because I've definitely seen instances where, you know, you just start creating interactors or service objects for everything. And then suddenly someone doesn't use the same pattern. So instead of dot do dot perform or dot do, or I don't know, however, whatever you want it to be. And I think defining that pattern and saying this, every time you create a service object, you instantiate it with dot call. And that is true for every service object in our application. I think that's very important and that will lead to less code down the road. Yeah, but then we can also get ourselves into a trap where we have nested our service objects so deep or interactors so deep where to actually get to the root of what is happening within this business logic or what its original intent was, you have to jump four or five. 10 objects deep, and then you start losing the overall conceptual expected output. And I think that's where we can run into some design problems where everything is nice and organized, but to actually then develop and maintain on this application becomes a lot more tedious. Yeah, true. Another thing as far as the naming goes that I wanted to talk about too, because again, this perspective is new to me because I've always just kind of done the, you know, noun service on the end is when you use more of like a, an action, you know, like a verb to describe what it's doing. It actually makes, at least from what I've seen, makes the code read a little bit better. So going back to Dave's example about a controller and wanting to be able to see and understand what's going on in the controller. You know, if you have several service objects that are interacting to, you know, get your desired result, you can have, you know, a service object, you know, object one service, object two service, whatever, you know, and you, and that reads okay, 
but when you kind of adopt the like the verb or the action word form, it actually makes the code more understandable because it's saying exactly what it's doing, right? So like determine a required inspection, you know, and then, you know, maybe the next line or another line down, it's, you know, send email, you know, to, you know, to customer or whatever. So having that initial like verb in in the front, so where it kind of reads almost like a list of instructions, I have found to be helpful in the few that we've uh, refactored so far. You know, I think I would actually prefer to flip-flop it. So instead of having a verb noun, I would have a noun verber. So it would be something like a user emailer or report inspection determinator, something like that instead. To me, that would just flow a bit more naturally with the Rails way of doing things. But I think that's just you know my personal opinion there. Right. Yeah, I can see that. The one thing that I thought when I was thinking about this is if my code to determine the required inspection wasn't in another class, if it was like, say, like in the private section of, of the controller, I probably wouldn't name it required inspection determinator, but I could see myself naming the method determine required inspection. You know what I mean? That's like when it clicked, when I was like, oh, this is the, you know, naming them very similarly to the same way I would name the method if, if it was in the same class. That kind of clicked a little bit better with me. And another yeah. thing I try to do with my service objects is to always namespace them. So the only top level in my services folder that I would have would be the application service. And everything else within there is namespaced. So I would have the report namespaced and then the inspection determinator or, you know, determinator, determine inspection, whatever. Yeah, I think however you do it, if you use namespaces or you kind of use kind of the naming convention Dave mentioned a minute ago, it's nice to know when looking at where the method is being called that like to be able to tell what it's kind of expecting, you know, like if it's a user email uh, deliverer, whatever, user reporter, whatever, it's nice to know, like personally, that it's probably going to expect a user and you can kind of infer that from the name. And I've kind of found that to be not necessarily self-documenting, but if you're running through the code in a controller or wherever you're at and you kind of, if you, if you kind of adhere to that type of pattern, it, it helps me kind of keep like that, keep it all in my head. Like, okay, well, this user notification deliver is obviously because it has user in it or it's namespace with user that it's going to require a user um, to do something. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I like that. We haven't gotten to that place yet. We namespace a lot of things, but services are something that we haven't. And I thought about it and I said, well, you know, how would we do that? We would just, I don't know, service, you know, colon, colon, and then the service, like, what would we do? But I do like that idea of what, you know, namespacing it with something or like the main thing that the service needs to do its job. I guess that would get a little 
parry if there were like multiple arguments that needed to be passed in. So maybe like the first argument is like the main thing that needs to be, you know, that needs to be passed in, or maybe that might be a sign to say, Hey, you know, could this be broken down into smaller objects so that each call method, you know, would only take one argument. I don't know. I'd have to see how that pans out, but that's definitely interesting to, to namespace it with, with, you know, with the, the, the type of class that it takes. Yeah. And you're right. It could break down. But I think if you can do that for the majority of your models or the majority of your services, I think that gets you a lot farther than you would be without. And, you know, Dave mentioned that he likes to namespace everything. And I know, Ron, you know that Nate specifically likes all of it. <laughs> he doesn't like namespacing everything. He likes the controllers to all be flat and the services and the models, et cetera, to be like one folder. Everything's at the top level. And then, so I kind of come from that point of view, I guess, but it could break down, but I think you could get pretty far until it does. And yeah, you're right. If you are having a service that it kind of breaks down for, that may be a cue that you need to be asking other questions. Yeah. Right. I mean, on smaller applications, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, put everything at the top level, it, you're not going to really see any benefit to namespacing things. But if your application, if you know that it's going to consist of thousands of controllers, then having to scroll through a tree of a thousand items is going to be annoying. You know, I've had to deal with that a few times and not a thousand controllers, but a thousand service objects and stuff like that. And it gets to be really hard to determine as you're looking at this tree, what do these things actually belong to? What are they related to? Right. Yeah. Having a better way than just like cracking open the source code and reading through it, having a better way to determine, hey, I want to use this service. How do I use it? Yeah, having a better way to determine that is is definitely would definitely be something that would be great because I find myself in that in you know in that situation you know fairly often you know be, being still relatively new to the code base like okay this service is named what I want to do but you know you know how do I use it you know i.e. what do I need to pass into it yeah i personally i like using i like documenting or adding comments and i know this is kind of anti dhh in a way dhh's pattern but i really like yard docs and I have my editor configured so that I can hover over the, like if I'm calling a service, I can hover over that, the name of that class and see like the docs. So I personally like just adding a little bit of documentation at the top in it, like a yard or R doc type format that says, this is what it does. This is what it accepts. And maybe like, this is how you call it. And this is maybe, and this is the return values that you would accept. I think that can get you pretty far. And if you're learning a new code base, I think that can get you a lot of like easy knowledge really upfront and quickly. Because if having to dig into these services and determining what they accept and what they return will yield a lot of knowledge about the code and how it works and how it's architected, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. Especially with, I, I always find myself wanting some kind of like commented documentation or something when I'm dealing with like clients that we've uh, written, you know, 
third-party API clients. And I just want to know what's the shape of whatever comes back, (laughs) you know? And I find myself having to either hit the API or like try to figure out some way or maybe go through the tests. And, you know, every once in a while in the spec, there'll be like, oh, hey, here's a sample of what the, you know, JSON payload looks like that comes back. But yeah, definitely that's where it gets me most of the time is like, I just want to know what this, what this client method or, you know, this client service returns, what's the shape of the payload. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing 10x developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy to use platform, saving you time and your cash. The Ruby Blend listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention the Ruby Blend when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Thanks to our friends at Honey Badger for sponsoring the show. Yeah, I think adding comments to the top of the class, because like, I, I would almost argue that that would be something that deserves to be in its own documentation. But realistically, the farther away documentation is from the source, the more likely. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm slash Justin. You'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. And faster, it will become out of date. So just having something in the, the top of the class, like if you're, yeah, or even if you just link to, you know, like an example payload, have fixtures or whatever they're called in our spec, I can't remember. However you decide to do it, I think it is important to, if that's a question you have often to like, go ahead and just solve that. Like, okay, here is my service. Here's a few comments about what it does. And then maybe you have a folder that is like called docs or something and you just link to the expected payload. I think that can get you very far and eliminate a lot of onboarding concerns and eliminating a lot of like, okay, well, I know I've done this a ton, but I I just can't remember right now what this returns. You know, It's almost like a shortcut, but it's something that I don't see a lot of people doing. It is something I try to do just because, you know, especially if you're working on an async team where you can't just roll over and ask someone, I think it just becomes more and more important to kind of, if your code itself is not self-documenting and you can write beautiful Ruby all you want and you're still not going to know, you know, the return of like hitting an API endpoint. So I think be kind to yourself in the future and other developers can go pretty far if you just add a little bit of documentation few comments, maybe link to an example file, put it in the readme and link to it from that file or what, however you and your team decide is going to work best for you. But just doing something is better than doing nothing, in my opinion. I definitely agree with you on that point of the code should be self-documenting. And I think one way we can achieve that is within our service object, within the instance method call, to have it very clear of what's happening. So don't put all of your business logic in there. You can put a lot of that into private methods, which would not only give you the benefit of memoizing something that you're calling many times, but then also you have a more clear understanding of what's going on. So for example, if you have a user email or service within your call method, you might take in the user ID. You have a guard clause which would then raise if the user is not found, 
that user is then a private method, which is then finding it by the user ID. You can then do, does this user have notifications enabled as one of the lines? Maybe that's another guard clause. Does this user have an email address? Another guard clause. And then you would just have another method that says send user email. And then that calls another private method, which would then actually perform sending out the email. So that way, at a very first glance, within the first 10 lines or so of the class method, you're going to be able to see exactly what's going on because it's written in plain English because all your actual business logic is in private methods down below. Right. Exactly. I agree 100%. I try to do that in general with every, you know, with all of the code that I write. I like my methods to be, you know, you know, between five and 10 lines, especially if it's like the entry to whatever features going on. Five or 10 lines, you know, five to 10 lines that call private methods that are named very plainly of, you know, what's going on. So when you read that method, it reads like English, like, you know, a set of instructions in English. It's going to do this first. It's going to do this next, you know, and I think that goes back to uh, one of the reasons why as a company, we've been trying to, you know, think about and refactor the way, you know, how we do services so that it, it is more readable like that. So that calling or, you know, collaborating with other objects is as clean as writing, you know, your private methods or, you know, calling your private methods, I should say. And that also makes it easier to test. I think that all of us are going to agree with this, but so I'm just going to kind of say it real quick. And then if you disagree, go ahead and raise, raise voice. But I think you should try to keep your services as like focused as possible and then just call out to other services as needed. I don't think sticking a lot of, if you're call, if you have to use several different objects, like maybe you need a user and you need a project and maybe you need a task or something. If you're building like a project management app, for instance, then sending all of those into the service is not what I prefer. I definitely prefer having them be kind of oriented around a single object and then calling out to other services as needed to maybe perform other things. But in your test, you just stub that out and just expect that that other service gets called so that you're not testing you can limit your test scope and write better tests, more clear tests, and then your service also doesn't get bloated with a bunch of objects that are, I, I, I'm, I'm slipping on the word, but it's a very like Sandy Metz type of architecture where a single responsibility probably, where, yeah, it's, it's a single responsibility. And if you have to reach out to grab something else, you, in your test, you stub that and then just expect that it gets called and for that other service. Yeah, I think as a general rule of thumb, that's definitely what we should strive towards. However, in my practical experience, and this is partially due to some of the design decisions that we made early on, that can get extremely difficult. So for example, if you have an employee who wants to clock in, well, that clock in, it seems simple enough but there's a lot of things that determine around it. What are some of the company configurations around clocking in? So schedule-based, you can only clock in when it's up to five minutes before your scheduled start time. And then what kind of 
profiles does this employee have? So do they have any kind of rules where if their hours are going to approach overtime, then they have to have a manager key in an approval code for them to clock in. So by the time you're done with it, you're actually having to touch 10, 15 different models in order to get a actual realistic idea of what is this employee allowed to do. So I think breaking it up as much as possible is really all we can do. But I think sometimes single responsibility kind of goes out the window when you start dealing with much more complex things. Right. And I've said this in the past, things like single responsibility, which I agree with and I try to use all the time. These principles are really nice and you should definitely know them. But along with knowing them, you should also know when not to use them, (laughs) you know, because there's no time where every one of these principles is applicable 100%. And in fact, there are even times where like, okay, you acknowledge that this is not SRP, but it's going to be better for our particular use case if we quote unquote violate SRP. So I have a question. I am now working in a legacy Rails 4 code base. So how can we kind of take some of the ideas that we've been tossing back and forth about a single responsibility pattern and this is how you should structure your services. This is how you should test them. How can I take all of that information and then once presented in this large legacy application, like how can I apply that? Is it every new service you write, you start doing that or do you start trying to refactor or kind of how would you guys think about applying these principles in a legacy app? I would say just go as, as you're working and you come across something that looks like it needs to be refactored to just do it that way. Cause like whole hog sweeping, like we're just going to go through the code base and change everything is, is dangerous in my, in my experience. So yeah, I think the code base living for, you know, an extended amount of time in a kind of hybrid state is, is okay. For instance, my required inspection service, that was not actually a service to begin with. That was a method on our policies. And I had to do some work in there. And I just thought, you know what, this would be, this would be good if it was kind of broken out. It doesn't need to live on the, on the active record model. It's just something I could pass that model into and get the return value from. So yeah, it was, it was just one of those things. Like I saw when I had to work in that area, I saw an opportunity to do it and I took it. And that's kind of the way that we at Kin are looking at these kind of things. We're also in the process of moving from, I mean, we're kind of partly ERB, partly slim, and we want to move all the way to ERB. And that's kind of the same approach that we take to that. Like, hey, if whatever you're working on happens to touch a, you know, a view file, just go ahead and convert it to, to ERB. Yeah, I think it's definitely a process. You do have to start from somewhere. If something is already working and if you're not having to touch it often, then I probably wouldn't spend the effort to refactor that. However, if it is something that you're having to touch often and it is a pain and you find that 
you're spending more and more time each time working in this area, then I think it's good to then make sure you have good test coverage and then start refactoring those specific areas into a more plain old Ruby object or service object. And the nice thing about Ruby and Ruby on Rails is that you don't have to upgrade your Ruby or Rails version to take advantage of this. You know, all we are really talking about is just plain old Ruby objects, which is accessible to any version of Ruby, really. Yeah. The service objects or interactors or whatever you want to call them is more, it's kind of like a, uh, a what do we name it and where do we put it problem, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, you could have all this in your controller or your model, but we don't, we like to have skinny models and skinny controllers. So we want to put it somewhere. And yeah, it's definitely a problem of like, where do we put it and what do we name it? And I think the, the important thing is regardless of what you choose, having that conversation with your team and reaching a consensus before you just start doing stuff, I think is key to making sure that, okay, moving forward, we're all going to use this interface versus me just going out and cowboy coding it and then just expecting other people to do it as well because they're not going to unless they know. And one other thing I would say about naming things is not so much about the class naming, but it is the actual method that you're calling it. Whether you're calling it call or if you have run as a method name, but also like using as one of y'all mentioned before, perform. And I'll switch between either call and run with perform depending on the immutability of what this object is doing. So if I'm taking in a user as one of the parameters and I'm going to actually be modifying and returning that user object, then I would most likely use the perform method name over call or run simply because I want whoever is going to be looking at that controller where this object is getting called, I want them to know that what they are giving me is not going to be the exact same when they get it back. Oh yeah, that's that's interesting. I like that using, you know, a call or, you know, whatever the method name is to communicate some more context about what is happening and what you will get back. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, perform to me more so indicates that it's asynchronous maybe or it it kind of indicates that I'm not going to actually get a return value. But, but that something is going to happen or maybe like, you know, some records get updated or it kicks off a background job or whatever. But call to me seems more synchronous and perform in my mind is more of an asynchronous thing. But is there anything else we wanted to talk about service objects? I know we wanted to talk about active storage a little bit before we wrap up today. I'm going yeah, to take we're good to, silence to as on. a no. Yeah. So Dave, you just released a drifting ruby episode on active storage you want to tell us what that was about real quick yeah as i dove into this episode it was titled bulk uploads with active storage there really isn't that much to cover i mean they have done a fantastic job with active storage from doing direct uploads which is as simple if you're starting a new fresh rail 6 application all of the javascripts already there included for you all you have to do is pass in one parameter, direct underscore upload, and set that to true. And then direct uploads just magically work. 
But the idea and the premise behind this episode was a little bit different of when you should not favor using has many attached. So let's say if you are creating a streaming service like Spotify or whatever, and as an artist, you want to upload many different songs, you don't want those songs to then just be attached to necessarily a parent object. So like if you're an artist, you would want a artist has many songs, but then a song belongs to an artist and a song has attached a media file. So when you are doing a drag and drop to upload 10 different songs, you would actually want 10 different active records records to be created. And that was the premise of it. this episode of how we can avoid having to use a has many attached and we can do a has one attached while doing direct uploads. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that because right now I'm working on an application to manage and host all our podcasting for Rebase, which is the name of this podcast network. And I'm about to get to the the uploads part where I guess for a single podcast episode, you can upload a cover art, you could upload the actual media file for the episode. Maybe you want to upload the video file if you're going to put it on YouTube or this or that. Like there are a few different types of uploads you can do. And I've been like sort of thinking through that, like how do I want to best do this? And that's interesting because I, I think, yeah, I immediately went to like it has many attached, but now I'm starting to rethink that. I'm going to have to, I'm going to dig into this episode a little bit more. Did you use a any sort of like stimulus or JavaScript library for the bulk uploads or was it just like you open up the file explorer and then you can select a few I and mean, it's not like done inside of the app? No JavaScript required. Nice. So music no, it doesn't to my give ears. you progress bars, but yeah, I think there's a JavaScript library that I'm thinking of. I think it's called DropZone.js that mm-hmm. I've used with active storage uploads before that works pretty well. If you need that, I mean, if you don't need that, then don't, don't add it just to add it, but that's cool. Ron, are you guys using active storage at work? Not that I know of. Yeah, for me, it's the CDN thing is really what I'm waiting for. And I guess like we monkey patched it at code fun and I thought about bringing that monkey patch over, but that feels bad. And I think it's coming in rail six one, but then I saw like an issue where I think part of it might be coming in rail six one part of it might not be. And we have no idea when rail six one is even coming out. So I don't know. Active storage to me, I, I mean, Dave, you said maybe you can elaborate on this, that active storage feels very flushed out and full feature, but to me, it does not. So it really depends on what your requirements are. So as far as the CDN goes, do you really care about your content being protected? Or is it okay if it is cached in the CDN without any kind of user authorization? If that's the case, then you probably could just give it the direct URL for the object. So if you're hosting it on S3, then you get this big, long, encrypted S3 URL that the user is then going to get their asset from. And that can automatically get cached through CloudFront or something like that. It may not be a Rails problem that you're having, but if you do have something where the episodes or the media that you're wanting to serve is more behind a 
walled garden or paywall, then things do get a bit more complicated. Yeah, I guess what I'm wanting is like I want to upload like an audio file, for instance, and I want to get the CloudFront CDN link back to my like and then store that versus storing like the link to it in S3 specifically. Like I, what I want is ret- what I want returned is something that I can use to distribute or like share so that other people can use it. And I don't want them using it straight out of S3. I want them using like the, the CloudFront CDN version of it or link to it, I guess. Yeah. And if you're using S3, then you can set the bucket, I think, to be host a public website and then attach that to CloudFront with a CNAME record on your DNS side. So like storage.rebase.fm. And then in the Rails application, that would just all be the default behavior. And I think that there's a way that you can then set it to a the asset URL. Right. Yeah. It, it, you see, and here's kind of like my problem with all this is that it is possible, but like finding out where, like finding the right tutorial or the right guide, because it's not really well documented in the Rails guides. And I know this is something they're working on. And I know I obviously could go contribute more if instead of complaining about it, but finding the right the right way to do it or the most up-to-date way to do it is kind of painful because yeah, I've heard like what you just said. I've heard that you can do that. I have yet to find like a definitive step-by-step guide on how to actually implement that unless you have one. (laughs) Sounds like an upcoming episode of Drifting Ruby. Fine. I'll do it. Now I can (laughs) figure out how to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I, I've always been like wary of S3 because very early on when I was learning Rails, my like the courses I bought online to teach me did some stuff on S3. And, you know, I made like the newbie mistakes. My my bucket wasn't configured correctly because they didn't show me how to correctly configure it. And then, you know, I, I leaked my Amazon keys on GitHub and that was painful. Oh, no. I, I don't know. The Bitcoin miners got me. So... Yeah, waking up to like a bill from Amazon for like $20,000 is like the fastest way to like, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's like getting like a, like a defibrillator shock straight to the chest. It was not a fun thing to read. Not at all. It's the fastest way to never use Amazon ever again. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is. Because it, it, well, yeah, but uh, that's another episode. <laughs> I don't know. It, it leaves you with like a fear. It's left me with a fear, I guess, that I'm still carrying to this day. Well, can I give you a nice alternative? Backblaze sure. B2 Cloud Storage. So Okay. I know it, I've heard of Black Backblaze. Yeah, Backblaze is basically a company that will allow you to back up your entire computer for $5 a month, something like that. So it does automatic backups to their cloud. But... They also recently released the Backblaze B2 cloud storage, which is a S3 compatible cloud storage API, which is a quarter of the price of Amazon AWS S3. And it actually works nicely. On Rubidium, I am actually hosting all of the assets on Backblaze B2. Well, I am, you said the magic words, which was cheaper. So, well, and you get your first 10 gigabytes for free. So, 
Yeah, I see that. I I think there's also DigitalOcean has something built in that you can kind of do the same thing, I think. But yeah, I, I've once again been wary to do that just because there's a lot of documentation for doing AWS and S3 and Rails and with active storage and less for these other things. But, you know, it's probably not that difficult and I probably just need to dig in and do it. Yeah, I mean, really, if it's a S3 compatible API, all you're changing is your access keys and your endpoint. Like, that's really all you have to change. Right, that's what I was going to say. A lot of these are S3 compatible, and any I've messed around with the DigitalOcean object storage, you know, their object storage offering, and it really was that simple. It was basically follow the a, or you know the AWS instructions and change your keys and endpoint for the most part. Well, good to know. Maybe I will, I will overcome my fear and give it a try. I pasted into this, the man. show notes the actual configuration in my storage YAML file for Backblaze that I'm using on Rubidium. Nice. We will make sure that that is available. And I guess the show notes are available at the rubyblend.com slash, I think this will be 20. So it'll be the rubyblend.com slash 20 for the show notes. And we will make sure to include that snippet that Dave dropped in. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us. I'm excited that you are going to be hanging out with us some more, get some more voices on here. And we have a few guests that we're going to try to line up for future episodes. So I apologize for the, the lengthy hiatus, I guess, we went on. But hopefully we're back and we're in full swing and we're going to be better than ever. So Dave, thanks for joining. Yeah, it was fun to be here. And Dave, where can people find you online? So I'm either on Twitter at Cobalt with a K-O-B-A-L-T-Z. That's my old World of Warcraft handle, which kind of stuck around. Or I'm always on driftandruby.com. Sweet. Well, Ron, it was good to catch up with you. Yeah, man. Good uh, good to be back in the swing of things. So. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get Nate and Eric on here and maybe we can finally, we'll have a full a full house and that'll be fun. So thank you guys for coming and thank you to all the listeners for hanging in there with us and we will catch you all next week. All right. Talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.